Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 24th, 2023. Time stops for nobody, and uh, things in the past seem now very old, very archaic. It was only 18 months ago, not even 18 months ago, that the United States withdrew their forces from Afghanistan. We haven't heard much about Afghanistan recently, unless you're an Afghan expert. But since that withdrawal, and even during the war itself, America has built up quite a literature on this war. Uh, we did a show uh, last year with Elliot Ackerman on the catastrophe of, uh, of Afghanistan. Uh, he even used the F word. Um, his book is called The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. It's a book about the catastrophe of Afghanistan, at least in terms of American uh, involvement and its disgraceful withdrawal. Uh, lots of other books about the violence, the terrible violence of the war. We did a show with Ben Kessling on the gut-wrenching story of what war was like. He wrote a book, Bravo Company, an Afghan deployment and its aftermath. In many ways, this is, I guess, a continuation of the kind of literature that was um, developed in Vietnam. Some of the other conversations we've had have been a little bit more sympathetic. We had a, a veteran, a man called Gus Biggio on the show a couple of years ago, who wrote a book, uh, The Wolves of Hellman, uh, A View from Inside the Den of Modern War, which gave a very sympathetic take. I had a very sympathetic take on Afghanistan, its people, its topology. And of course, many of the books have dealt with the relationship between the American soldiers, the occupiers, and the Afghan people themselves. Last year, we did one show with two men, Major Tom Schumann and a man called Zanullah Zaki, on their relationship uh, in Afghanistan. They wrote a book, Always Faithful, a story of the war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter. They're making a movie out of it. It's a very Hollywood production of this uh, emotionally intimate relationship between an American soldier and his Afghan interpreter. Today, we are dealing with that, but in a twisted kind of way. My guest is Jeffrey E. Stern. He has a new book out, The Mercenary, a story of brotherhood and terror in the Afghanistan war. It's once again uh, a book about relationships between Americans and Afghans, but it's not quite as Hollywood, I think, uh, as, um, as the book uh, Always Faithful. Jeffrey is joining us from Philadelphia, where he lives. Uh, congratulations, Jeff, on the new book. It's just out this week. Are you familiar with the Always Faithful book? I'm sure you've you've had a look at it. I haven't read it. No, I've only just learned of the story when everyone else saw the trailers like I did for the movie. Your book, though, has a, a, a different take, maybe a more twisted or certainly a more complicated take on the relationship between the American, whether you want to call them invader or occupier or liberating army, and uh, the Afghan people. Tell me a little bit about this book. 
So I, I tried to do was tell um, a slightly different story, ideally a little bit more of a more of a humble story, in part by showing my own, I think, lack of humility as, uh, you know, a young man kind of barreling into this war um, and, you know, essentially trying to do some good, but really also just trying to make a career for myself um, and kind of licensing myself to do what it took. Um, I, you know, I was working on development projects, but largely I was there as a journalist and was able to kind of license myself to see things and kind of intrude into people's lives because I was, you know, I was doing the Lord's work. I was doing journalism. Um, and one of the things that happened along the way, is, I, I mean, of course, I met a lot of people. I became very close to a lot of people. But one young man in particular who was kind of like me, he was sort of trying to make a name for himself, trying to trying to make a career. Um, we became very close. And uh, he, he ended up having a very interesting life, which I won't I won't go into now, except to say the way I've tried to structure the book is to tell my story about meeting him and me and me kind of narrating what I thought was happening and then go back and tell some of that some of that same story from his perspective um, and sort of sharing with the reader what's what's actually happening um, and what I looked like uh, through his eyes. So I, I hope what what comes out is not a muddled picture, but a, a, a kind of a nuanced picture of what good intentions and sometimes selfish intentions and sometimes charitable intentions, um, what effect they can have when they are acted on with a sort of lack of humility and lack of understanding. And I don't have, you know, a thesis about we should have done this or we should have done that, except to say, I, I think that we, we as America, we as the West, we as NATO, we as ISAF, um, entered into this conflict the way I think we sometimes perhaps often do, um, which is, you know, justified or unjustified with kind of a lack of humility and a lack of understanding that, that was available that we could have had and that that wasn't inevitable. Yeah, the, the other H word, the opposite of humility is hubris, um, which I think is what you're writing about in a both metaphorical and literal sense. You're an interesting piece for... Um, uh, the Duke Alumni Magazine uh, back in uh, August 2008, The Ghosts of Kabul, about your introduction to life in Afghanistan. What year did you show up and, and why did you go? I, I showed up in, uh, I think my first day in the country was September, uh, it was late August, or early September 2007. Um, the, the reason I went is because I wanted to write uh, I didn't really have that big of a portfolio. I had done some, I, I, I'd been permitted to do some long form writing for a free local kind of hippie rag near where I went to college, but I didn't write for my college newspaper. I didn't take a bunch of journalism classes. So I didn't really have a portfolio um, or, or a reason why any editor would, would take me seriously. Someone said kind of as a joke that became an idea that became a plan. You want to just go somewhere where the, you know, the place will sort of advertise for itself. Uh, so at the time that was Iraq or Afghanistan. And I knew very little about either, uh, to your point about hubris, um, except that I knew it was very expensive to operate in Iraq. Um, and my sense uh, from about Afghanistan was it was still a little bit the wild west, wild east, maybe like you could still kind of wing it. Um, so, so that's what I ended up doing. I cashed out my bank account. I had enough money for two weeks in the country. And then I kind of just I'd, I'd had this sort of, um, you know, pyramid scheme where I took this little job to to fund a little bit more reporting and, and this little job to fund a little bit more. And I ended up there for a year.
So this book, The Mercenary, is based on the year you spent, what, 2007, 2008 in Afghanistan? It, it, it's a lot of that. And then also, so I was there for a year. I ended up going back a bunch of times, uh, working on another book. I was there for another year. So it, it's the first part of the book is 2007 to 2011. Then it goes back and covers some of that same period of time from his perspective. Right. So you're... Um... And I'm quoting from the book's description, you were scouring the streets of Kabul for a big story and you were accompanied by your driver, Amal. Uh, tell me a little bit about Amal. Amal, he was, he was kind of charming. He was funny. Uh, he had taught himself English and his English was not very good, but I spoke no Farsi, so you know, I was no one to judge. And he was very confident in it. So, um, and he was very, it became clear really quickly that he was really street smart. He could kind of talk his way into anything. Um, and I think he, I mean, now I know he sort of took pity on me, frankly. I mean, he saw that I was uh, uh, out of my depth and he kind of took it upon himself to, to keep me safe and also to help me pursue this career that I apparently wanted to pursue, you know, being a journalist, but with no access to anyone. So he, he sort of made my career. Um, and, and at the same time, he was making one for himself that I, that I was sort of blind to until way later. So this is not like the the Schumann Zaki relationship. This is not a relationship of equals. This is a relationship of secrets, of ambivalence, um, and of um, hidden truths. Uh, do you think that the and and I don't want to comment on the always faithful, the particular narrative, but do you think that the truths you're writing about, the truth about power and interest and what people are really up to? Did that usually lace most relationships between Americans and Afghans during the war? Yeah, in my, at least in my personal experience, it almost always did. Um, you know, an example of that is some of the very low level kind of development education projects I, I was involved in at a, at a low level. But all the organizations, you know, it was always oh, the local staff is such a pain. And, the you know, there was, there was sort of you you get into this almost corporate culture where you know, it's us and them. It's you almost inevitably kind of slip into an almost colonial is probably too strong a word, but um, but a but a, a kind of caste. And I, I I threw no threw no force out of my own ended up in a job where my boss was Afghan. Uh, and I think that kind of forced a little bit of a, of a slightly different perspective. But I, I think that that's like an astute point. I think that 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 kind of inflects almost every inner, not every, but but many interactions between Westerners coming in and and Af and Afghans. Well, when we did the interview with um, with Schumann and, and and Zaki, Zaki was on the interview actually, and it was a rather awkward interview because his English wasn't that good. If if we had uh, your driver in this uh, interview, what do you think he'd say honestly about you? I mean, if you were there, of course, he would say nice things. What do you think the truth of his opinion of you is or was? I like to think I got close to it after spending a lot of time with him, you know, in the aftermath, trying to trying to retell this story from his perspective. Um, and he and it's hard to get him to be critical, even though I, I know that he he felt critical about certain things. But but I think he would he would point out if you really pressed him uh, and probably if we turn the cameras off and stop recording that I was sort of surprisingly naive you know I, I was sort of surprisingly out of my depth and um 
you know, he even he in, in his early years, he really idolized white people, foreigners. And we saw them on a satellite dish and he thought, you know, white people have great lives. Foreigners have great lives. And he wanted to he wanted to be near them. Um, and he was sort of disappointed when he met me because I was, you know, I'm not the biggest guy. I wasn't well dressed. I wasn't rich. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't I didn't sort of I wasn't I wasn't Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is what his experience of ironically of of Westerners was. So I think he would I think he would point out how um, and some of the things that I asked him to do were he thought at the time and didn't tell me were rather foolish. Um, but because partially because of that power dynamic you're talking about, he, he, he never questioned it. You know, he never he never questioned doing things that he that he knew uh, were unwise. He just did it and tried to make sure that I was safe. Um, so he was, uh, I mean, the book is, of course, called um, The Mercenary. We think of mercenaries as soldiers of fortune or hired guns. Was he a mercenary or was it you who was the mercenary? I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that question. You know, once we settle on that title, which was not, you know, was, was not the first choice, but. In other words, you don't like the title. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> well, you implied it. If, if we're going to have these nuanced conversations, Jeff, I'm getting the sense that you would have preferred another title. What title would you have preferred? You know, I always like the driver. Uh, yeah. Initially, that's... What Maybe you could have had the mercenary driver. <laughs> yeah. But also because it's sort of, to me, it kind of reflected the power dynamic again. And, and more than the power dynamic, just sort of the... The, the relationship, because even years later, when he became very successful again, he would say, I'm just your driver. And it was sort of this joke because he'd become way more successful than me. But the, but the thing that the mercenary allowed, allowed, I guess, me to do, which I hadn't thought of, was actually ask that, just that question you just asked, which, well, wait a minute, well, who is the mercenary? Uh, and, to, and to try to not answer the question for the reader, but at least give enough, um, for lack of a better word, ammunition. I mean, en enough, enough data points that it's a question, you know, it, was it me? It arguably, probably a better argument is that it's more me than him. Well, you suggest you, you went to Afghanistan to profit one way or the other as a writer to learn the ins and outs of uh, writing about a complex place. Did he help you as a writer? Do you think you're a better writer now because of Amal? I think I am a writer now because of him. I, um, you know, I think one of the things I probably learned from him was how to interact with people. Um, he just, you know, he, he always had a way of projecting honesty and respect, even when he wasn't <laughs> being honest or when he didn't respect people. Um, and, you know, to, arguably to the point of, of manipulation, but, but he was one of those people you, you always felt and I think was often genuinely really interested in just you being comfortable, you know, whether, whether you were me or whether you were a guard at a checkpoint or whether you were uh, an eyewitness who didn't, who, who, who had some information that, that, that I needed. Um, so there was sort of a way of interacting with people that I, that I learned from him. Um, and I think that I like to think uh, sort of helped me just engage with, you know, with the world as a, as a writer, as a journalist, as a, as a nonfiction writer. What was his back or what is his background? Where was he born? How old was he when he became your driver? I assume you were of similar age. Yeah, we were similar. Like he was he, almost exactly the same age. He was a year younger. Um, he he grew up in Kabul um, in the in the Civil War years and then the first Taliban regime. 
Um, so his childhood was, I mean, literally starving. He, 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 uh, his days were sort of spent scrounging for food. Um, and, and he, but he, at some point, his brother stumbled across a satellite dish that they managed to set up. And when they had city power for a few hours a night, they would watch, they would, they would watch whatever was coming down. And he, um, he, so he sort of taught himself English and, and learned this sort of, uh, aspirational, almost obsession with foreigners. And so when, when the foreign intervention began, it was, it was sort of an opportunity for him. He'd had a number of, a number of jobs kind of escalating slightly in, in income, never very much. And then he got a job at this taxi company called Afghan Logistics, where one of the things they did was offer foreigners rides from any, anywhere around Kabul for $7 a ride and theoretically a nice car and theoretically an English speaking driver. So he took that job, even though he didn't have a driver's license at the time, he talked himself into it. And, um, and that, and he felt like he'd made it, you know, he, he got to be around foreigners. He got to be around the people he idolized. Um, and he, and he got, uh, he got every once in a while, he got some tip money. You said earlier that, um, he became quite, successful quite wealthy more successful perhaps as you put it than yourself wealthier than you what happened what, what how, how did he how did he do this so after a while at at this company afghan logistics he had the idea of starting his own uh, logistics company meaning taxis rides but also you know also helping people with other kinds of with other kinds of operations uh journalistic organizations more established ones than me that needed some vehicles to go from you know this city to that city uh so he 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 helped start a number of uh, with with some friends a number of other companies they never quite did well and then he decided to start his own um and he asked me that this time i was one of my stints back in america he asked me for a loan and i somehow managed to send him 700 dollars. and he reacted as if yeah i just changed his entire life and i never quite understood why and when i went back uh, he already was sort of showing signs of a lot of material wealth, which he said, you know, you've done this, this is your company. And I, that also didn't quite make sense, but I, I took the compliment. Um, and it turned out what he, what he was doing, that the way he made a lot of money um, was taking armor, mostly armored vehicles that had been given to Afghan warlords as kind of patronage relationship, uh, in this case with Iran, um, that, but that some of these warlords didn't, didn't need all of them. A lot of them have just garages full of uh, armored vehicles and other things just sort of sitting there. And it occurred to him all that he could take those and, and, and make money off of them. And so he started leasing arms, mostly armored vehicles, to mostly Western security contractors. So American and, and British and NATO uh, military intelligence subcontractors. And and he could he could charge almost whatever he wanted. Um, and when security deteriorated, he could charge more. And when there were elections, he, so he was an arms dealer. Yeah, in essence, he was an arms dealer. Well, not in essence, he was one for, for yeah. better or worse. That's not critical. I mean, you wrote an interesting piece for The New York Times back in uh, 2018, the journey of an American bomb from Arizona to Yemen. So you, you covered this material, too. Mm -hmm. uh, what's his fate or what is his fate today after the american withdrawal and the return of the taliban i'm guessing he wasn't there he's not a great fan of the taliban and 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 and, and they're not great fans of him yeah uh well so his his 
he he flew too close to the sun uh, back in 2010 or 2011. Actually, it would have been 2011. So at this at this point, he had become really successful. He had perhaps cheated one of his business partners, who who um, who became very angry, and Amal was sort of threatened by that. And then also, one of the things he had managed to do was he he had such good relationships with a lot of people in the in the Western security establishment that he was able to get on and off bases really easily with not as much checking as as other other Afghans. Uh, would be subjected to. The Taliban took notice that, and they were trying to do a 10th anniversary, a 9-11 10th anniversary attack, sort of a Trojan horse thing where his cars would take them onto one of the Western bases. Um, and he kind of tried to stall and stall, and then it became clear that they weren't, they weren't going to give up. Um, and so those two things kind of closed in on him, you know, the business partner threatening him and the fact that he was running out of ways to not help the Taliban do this attack. And he ended up, uh, he ended up essentially sneaking out of the country and ended up in Canada and with nothing and kind of rebuilt himself up from there. Um, and actually that becomes part three of the book. Both of us, our lives from 2011 uh, to now to, to the, mo to the withdrawal in, in 2021. Has he seen the book? Yes. Yeah. And what's he think? He, uh, you know, part, it was partly his idea um, because he's, he's pulled himself up from his bootstrap so many times he's, he didn't pay you to write it no he didn't i'm pay joking me i'm joking <laughs> he wanted he wanted his the story out there uh he you know there were i think he's proud of it i to to your sense i don't think that he would tell me if he wasn't but it was important that he thought it was at least faithful so you know he's he's rare yeah, i mean talking of faithful always faithful it's a very different kind of relationship a much more complicated and truthful one i think than some of these books um oh, uh, some people have described your book as in terms of a narrative of being rashomon like uh, uh, is that fair i mean does it really depend the story depend on who's telling it well i i, I kind of like that description i i mean partially just because i'm a sucker for those kinds of stories but i think here it actually if you know if it works and it's not <laughs> for me to judge if it i guess if it does but I think it's important. I think it, I think it could be useful to, to, to see this, see this experience through my eyes and then to try to see it th through his eyes. Um, and of course it's still me, I'm still the writer, but I am trying to go back and tell, and in some cases, the exact same scene that you saw once before you saw Jeff, the journalist getting us out of trouble, you know, Jeff, the journalist kind of being the hero. You see that scene again from his perspective and you realize how much in some cases I was traumatizing the people around me, how much in some cases I was, I was making the situation worse, not better. Um, so I, I think in addition to just personally, I, I, I like those kinds of stories where you see something again from a different perspective. My hope is that here it can actually be useful. Yeah. Not only useful, but truthful. And uh, maybe for Hollywood, it's, it's too truthful. They might not be interested. You mentioned earlier, Jeff, you're a nonfiction writer. You've, co-authored two very successful books, the 1517 to Paris, Back in the Game, and you're also the author of another non-fiction, a, a successful book from 2016, The Last Thousand One Schools Promise in a Nation at War. I wondered whether you were ever attracted to, to doing this book as, as fiction, because it's so layered, it's so complicated, that it, perhaps in a way uh, it lends itself more to fiction than non-fiction. 
I, I think that I'm so glad you asked that question. I've been thinking a lot about that recently, um, partially just for mechanical reasons. I think it's hard to present a nonfiction book in a way that get, where it gets read as, you know, a novel. And not to say this is, you know, God's gift to literature or anything, but it is, but I'm trying to to tell a story in a way that maybe is more akin to, you know, maybe someone who reads a novel will appreciate it more than certainly someone who's an Afghanistan expert and thinks they're going to learn more about the politics of Afghanistan. I certainly am not an expert and I don't expect to educate people about the politics or the economy or anything like that. I think the, the one big advantage for all the challenges that doing something nonfiction, uh, the one big advantage is just that there's certain things, and maybe this is not a good example of it, but there's certain things that, you know, if I, if it's fiction, no one would believe it would, it wouldn't be credible. Uh, and the fact that it yeah, actually maybe, happened. maybe not, maybe, you know, the, the blurring of, I do so many, I have so many conversations with both fiction and nonfiction writers. Sometimes fiction writers deal, it's easier to deal with unbelievable stuff in fiction than it is with nonfiction. Right. Well, I think I'm going to take that to heart then because, you know, well, don't you blame me if you're right. Cause books, <laughs> uh, fiction, you know, novels, you know, this as well as I do probably better. There are a lot of work and they're not always, um, as lucrative as, as, as they might be. You, you came back, this guy in a sense, as you suggested, made your career. You've become a successful nonfiction writer. You've written a number of really important pieces, couple for the Atlantic on a fire in Oregon and the violence of that. And then uh, a terrible execution in Oklahoma that was botched. I wonder whether your experience in Afghanistan and particularly, um, with, uh, Amal, uh, Amal, did that train you to make more sense of America? In other words, you're not an Afghan expert, as you said. You're a, a nonfiction journalist. You went to Afghanistan completely untrained, unschooled, a green writer, and you came back more experienced. Has that helped you make sense of America? And in that sense, is perhaps making sense of America and making sense of Afghanistan not quite as different as some Americans might like to think? Huh. I'm not sure I've ever thought about it that way. I, I think it's possible that by being not just a, an American in Afghanistan, but a, an American who was so especially dependent on Afghans, you, you know, for basically the entire time I was there. I think that probably did, um, you know, begin the begin the process of at least being able to see, to see a corner of the hubris that, that you're talking about, um, which, which is challenging because I am, I am part of that. And I manifested that. And I'm in, in the book, I'm sort of showing myself as an example of that. But I think you're probably right that, that, but being there and, and see, and I can't say that I saw America the way that my Afghan friend saw it, but I think I, I probably became closer than a lot of people have the opportunity to, um, and that probably has leaked into the way that I look at other, you know, that I look around and sort of see institutions and, and, and sort of question them a little bit and see, and, and try to find, you know, try to find an example of, of, of where the, where the sort of institution, where the inertia can take us in sort of corrosive and bad and, 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 and painful directions. If that makes any kind of sense. 
Let's talk about the fate of Afghanistan. As you've said, you're, you're not making yourself an expert. You must have strong feelings, though, about the U.S. withdrawal. Guys like Ackerman remain intensely angry and embarrassed. What's your sense of the American withdrawal? Was it as disgraceful as many people argue? That is my personal opinion. I, I will, you know, I think I have to caveat that with saying, I don't know that, I don't know that were I not so close to so many people, I don't know what my opinion would be. Um, I've said this with the, with the first book, which is about um, this, this Afghan minority group in a co-educational school. It was this really inspiring thing um, that was very much at risk um, that, you know, I'm generally not a martial person. Of course, you, I think for most people who cover war, it's there's this weird sort of symbiosis where you need it, but also you're not a supporter of it. Um, that aside, I wanted hundreds of thousands of American troops in Afghanistan because there's people that I became really close to were were at risk if we left. Um, that ne wouldn't necessarily be my po my you know political. That wouldn't be consistent necessarily with my political outlook. So my bias was stay there forever. You know, put a battalion there. You know, I, it, do whatever it takes to to protect whatever progress we made, however impractical that is. When when Afghanistan collapsed. I was for a while, I was extremely angry, but also I had gotten sucked into these evacuation efforts because you, know, you said very successful book uh, that that book was not very successful, but I've begun to think that everyone in Afghanistan is sort of aware of it and they all seem to have a way of getting in touch with me. So for for brilliant until now, there's just been an immense outpouring of desperation and need and almost no infrastructure to deal with it. Um, so I, I do think it's disgraceful. Uh, I think that I mean, that's my bias. Um, it, it affected me personally. It continues to. I don't think it was necessary. Um, but but I, I also feel it's important to, to point out that this is this is an emotional thing rather than an, you know, rather than an objective thing for me. And let's end with Imal. What, what's his take? What's his reading of what's happened to his country? Would he want to go back if the Taliban were replaced by somebody else, by a more quote-unquote democratic representative government? He would, you know what, he, he, I think, is almost as angry as I am about the withdrawal, except he, he was able to, like he is with almost everything, he was able to figure out ways to, to get some people out, um, probably more effectively than I was. He, wa he wants to go back regardless of who's in charge. He wants to go back and he, you know, he feels that he can make little changes here and there. And before, before the collapse, he had this women's empowerment organization. He was running from abroad. Um, I think he thinks he can do anything. And I kind of think that he can.